are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm very excited to talk with my guest today, Janita Hajiabdich. Gary is joining me for the second time because we've recorded once before. And where were you? Your back porch or something like that at home, right? It was. I, I was at home and I promise I've never had those issues before. And something happened. Well, I was using a, uh, I was using a different system and whatever it was between the two of us, oh my gosh, it was, we, I, I was going to try to make it work and stitch it together, um, but it was going to take my editor like two full days to <laughs> correct all of the issues that we had. And so Janita uh, was uh, kind enough to find time to come back on the show to have this wonderful conversation. I'll, I'll just, I'm, I'm going to do it in kind of a little bit slightly reverse order i want to give like a little bit of a spoiler toward the end because i thought one of the really cool interesting things about our conversation there was a bunch of cool things that we're going to be talking about very fascinating research that you do but one of the really interesting things was we took a simple act of hey this is why you shouldn't um if you're out camping and you're going out of state or whatever, you shouldn't take firewood from where you're at. You bought a whole big three cords of firewood. You got a big deal on it. And and now you want to take that firewood 200 miles away and go camping. And and uh, and the campground says, hey, use um, the local firewood only. And you might be like, well, what, what the heck is the difference? And we kind of broke down some of the intricacies of why that's a thing, why that's something that we need to be mindful of. We went into a whole bunch of other stuff as well, but it was fascinating to me that all of it, everything that we talked about was also connected to that. that, Like at the end of the day, the big takeaway punchline for everyone was buy the firewood locally in your local area. So why don't we start off kind of like we did last time and just have you introduce yourself and your research to the good people listening. So thank you for meeting with me again. (laughs) What was that? (laughs) It was like two months ago or something, right? So so we're in luck because two months ago, I'm sure I forgot half of it. So it'll be all fresh and exciting to me all all over again. Third time's the charm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My name is Janita Hajabdij-Giri, and I'm a faculty at the University of Tennessee Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology. Uh, My research focuses on host pathogen interactions, uh, preservation of biodiversity of native plants, uh, conservation efforts, and population genetics and population biology of uh, different um, fungi and and plants, basically. Uh, More recently, I started uh, working a little bit more in microbiome. Uh, We have several different projects related to that, and that's really exciting. But um, generally, what we are trying to do is to preserve... uh, native trees uh, across the United States and globally uh, and prevent diseases from further spread. 
So I've been I've been seeing um, uh, there's there's a lot that's been going on since we since we last talked. Maybe it's because I I'm now have that um, uh, kind of confirmation bias, or you learn something new and it kind of changes the way that you perceive the world, and certain things get highlighted. And what I've been seeing a lot of since we talked and kind of sort of lost the recording but talked talked a lot about um some of the uh the the different uh tree diseases and funguses that uh, that are affect their health and population and since that time over the last 2 months I've actually been seeing a fair amount of stories about wood prices going up or maybe that's partially a seasonal thing or is it only because i talk to you and my conscious experience of life is such that now i'm noticing things more like that or have you noticed an uptick as well of those reports in the news i think it's combination of things as well um part of this is pandemic uh, gave us a slightly different hobbies so i'm mm-hmm. sure the the wood and woodworking isn't uh, on a rise, which could be one of the reasons. Again, I'm just um, speculating on that part. I'm not 100% right. sure. Um, but yes, the diseases will do uh, things like that because demand for, for instance, uh, we do research with uh, walnuts. So there is a, a disease called thousand canker disease. And it's a complex disease, which means it involves the host and the vector. And now we have alternative vectors, not just one. Uh, we have multiple vectors, uh, insect vectors, that can carry the, the pathogen, which in this particular case, it's a fungus. Um, and, um, and then you have multiple hosts. And in this particular example, also, we have multiple walnut species uh, being susceptible. So walnut is highly prized for its wood and wood quality. Um, it's really heavily used in woodworking, and oftentimes people would invest in walnut orchards as a, a long-term investment. Uh, we're talking 50 and more years, and they use that as a retirement property, actually, uh, because a single good quality walnut tree can be extremely pricey, uh, and they're bred or um, selected, really, uh, for straightness of the trunk, for the quality of the wood. So the good quality wood can be expensive. And if people are investing in this over the next uh, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, losing that property is a really big problem. So that is part of the issue we're dealing with. So in this particular disease appeared in the Western U.S. in the late um, 1990s, early 2000. And then uh, basically in 2010, it appeared in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, and it the the western the eastern border of the western um uh, progression was basically New Mexico. That's as far as it was in New Mexico, Colorado. That was the border of the Western states. Um, and for instance, we know that the pathogen or the beetle cannot fly that far. So this was one of those uh, human mediated movements. Uh, and we talked earlier, I don't know which take was that, uh, but <laughs> do not move the firewood. And this is a really good example of please do not move the firewood. Uh, mm-hmm. Because this is how more likely we had multiple introductions multiple times, uh, because both beetle and the pathogen are very genetically diverse, and that indicates more likely that um, they are um, introduced to this part of the world, meaning eastern part. That's where I'm at multiple times on multiple occasions. So um, that is the interesting part. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> oh no, the longer the better. I, I. Uh, it- it's it's a fascinating topic because you have 
in a in a given area you have this host parasite insect you have this kind of ecosystem this maybe not necessarily symbiotic but but there or or i think we kind of talked about the the red queen effect of of the kind of arms race between hosts and parasites and trees in a in a local area might develop some um some defenses to uh to certain uh, whatever it might be in the area beetles or whatever else but then you go and you move that uh, that species into a whole other area where generations of trees haven't had the chance to um to adapt to uh to that specific threat and now this this uh this parasite or bacteria or insect or whatever that's that's gotten really good at having to outwit the defenses of a tree in a given area and now it's in an area where these trees are defenseless they have no kind of natural defenses with the, we kind of had a, a, a episode about um, we had an episode about murder hornets last year kind of a similar-ish situation going on of these uh, Asian giant hornets where where the bees in their native area have this amazing defense they've evolved over many 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 generations where where the giant Asian hornet will come in and oftentimes if if it if it goes out and gets its buddies soon enough it can kill all of the bees but the bees have adapted this defense where they can swarm the giant asian hornet and and kill it before it has a chance to go out and and uh give up the location of where where they're at and sometimes they get it sometimes they don't but it's this arms race that goes back and forth and then all of a sudden the giant asian hornet comes uh to the u.s in a shipping container or something and there's uh, and the bees here are completely de- uh, defenseless. They don't have the, they've never seen anything like this. They don't have this mechanism in place to uh, to stop the giant Asian hornet from coming over. And then theoretically, this hasn't happened yet. Then then this is a this is a great kind of fertile, abundant <laughs> ground for the giant Asian hornet and can explode into this invasive species and really change the ecosystem in a given area and sort of similar ish things kind of happen with trees and, and absolutely. And it's pretty like the whole adaptation uh, as a part of evolution is, I, I find it extremely fascinating. I think yeah. that's where you can nerd out <laughs> like there is no tomorrow. For um, sure. So similar things happen with, um, for instance, uh, most people are familiar with dogwoods. Uh, dogwoods are beautiful ornamental trees. They're one of the first bloomers um, in the eastern United States. They're native here. Um, and there was a pretty devastating disease that uh, wiped off almost all um, dogwoods. It was called dogwood anthracnose. Um, and actually, that's what I did for my PhD. I did a population genetics of the trees, not the pathogen. Uh, and in certain areas, the mortality rate because of this pathogen, which was introduced, actually, pathogen uh, from Asia, uh, was almost like 98% mortality rate. So Mm -hmm. we were pretty fascinated with that. And you were thinking, um, this is what I usually use with my students. Um, Sometimes it's easier for them to think in terms of humans and animals, because 
plants do not move and it's really hard to uh, think about plants and pathogens in that way. And I usually tell them, like, if you have only 2% of individuals staying on the island, for us to repopulate that island is going to take some time. Yeah, it, it's possible, but it's going to be a lot of inbreeding, more likely. You know, it's mm-hmm. going to be a few things happening in between, but it's going to take so many generations to get a healthy, new, viable population. So now you're having the same things with trees. You have 98% mortality rate in certain areas. Because of the pathogen pressure, you're thinking your genetic diversity of the tree is going to be decimated. You only have 2% of this population alive. Um, Again, in certain areas, this is a native tree. The pathogen is introduced. It does not have any enemies. It does not have any biological control. Um, The Kusa dogwood, which is... uh, variety basically of the Asian origin, that's the, uh, the the dogwood that's originated in Asia, is quite tolerant to this disease. Um, it does not affect it as much. It does get it, but it's not as deadly. Um, and they were not as affected as native dogwood, uh, which is Cornus Florida. So when we did population study, uh, to my surprise, and it took me four years to tell you that, <laughs> so the genetic diversity is not reduced, actually. And we have four genetic clusters of dogwood trees. And they're more or less um, almost like a one really big genetic neighborhood. Uh, you have four different genetic clusters, but there's quite a bit of gene flow uh, within the eastern population of dogwoods. And that's simply, again, evolution is a beautiful thing. <laughs> you have birds that consume um, the seed of dogwoods. Uh, and when they do migrations, um, they stay in the digestive system for at least 24 hours. And as they migrate, they deposit that seed along the way and uh, along the migration route. That was at least our hypothesis. Um, and they collect these seeds from random trees along the way. And more likely, those are survivors. Those are pretty strong trees that were not as affected. And this is how you more likely ended up with a high genetic diversity along the way uh, and preservation of biodiversity and even though you had a high mortality, these trees are going to survive no matter how big disease pressure is. I mean, to me, that's pretty absolutely fascinating that um, mm. the trees are able to respond that way. Or, you know, trees have certain uh, natural defenses. Um, so, for instance, we're working with oaks now. Uh, and oaks have tylosis, which if you think about that, they're almost like a balloons. Um, and when the pathogen enters the, the host system then they basically um, uh, use this as a first line of defense and nothing can go through, including um, the the nutrients as well. Um, And then this is the first line of defense. Also, um, another line of defense that trees have that's pretty fascinating, it's called hypersensitive response. Uh, So when the pathogen, for instance, lands on a a leaf, uh, the, the plant itself induces the cell death of the surrounding cells so the pathogen cannot spread any further. I mean, think about that as an adaptation. I think it's so beautiful and amazing. So so plants and trees in general, they have a variety of ways to protect themselves against different um, uh, invaders. Uh, and they've done this pretty successfully for um, millions of years. But every now and then you have a system like that, like your um, uh, what you were using uh, that just overpowers the the, the host defense systems or the trees weaken because of the climate change and the lack of nutrients and prolonged drought periods. So the trees are already stressed and we're seeing that quite a bit. And we're seeing the effect 
more likely of uh, changing in microbial communities as a result of a drought, uh, including coming back to TCD, thousand canker disease, uh, we've seen much bigger progression in the West where you have arid, dry climates versus the East, uh, where we have a little bit different winters. And so all of that goes back to so many, it's very interconnected, everything from uh, pathogen pressures to climate change, to drought conditions, to host defenses, you have a stressors and trees can handle so much, just like us, you know, we snap at some point when the stressors become overwhelming. So you can fight certain infections, but at some point the body breaks down if it's too much. Um, right. So trees are the same. So this is uh, kind of the the difference between the the health of the the ones in the East and the West. And in this particular case is that the ones in the West are kind of having, uh, undergoing these this kind of two prong pressure where it's not just the um, uh, just the thousand canker that they're having to worry about. They're just they're not getting enough nutrients to help them to help defend them against that. Right. So so there there are a number of of theories and ideas and it's it's the whole system. I find it not just because I work with it. uh, I just find it super fascinating. So number one, it's a complex disease. So um, I have to work with um, people that are experts in uh, entomology is not my background, for instance. So I have a fantastic collaborator uh, that I work with um, who's an entomologist. Um, then you have to work with, we just started working with a physiologist. Like that's really not my background. But now we started collaborating and doing some drought um, experiments potentially and seeing how drought affects this. But going a little bit larger and bigger picture. So disease appeared on walnuts all walnut species in the Western US. So walnuts are not native in that area. They are planted, black walnuts are not native in that area. So they were basically taken with pioneers uh, during the the big migrations and they were planted there um, for as a food crop. Mm. So now you're moving a native tree from this area to non-native area. Now you are inducing uh, different host responses. The tree does not have a natural defense mechanisms, it's going to take some time for adaptations to occur to that environment. Um, And what they believe, um, what scientists think at this point is also the pathogen that's involved in this uh, complex, it's called Geosmithia morbida. But it's really interesting talking about evolution and adaptation. So this pathogen was the first pathogen in the species, in the genus Geosmithia that ended up being pathogenic. That means it can induce disease. Mm-hmm. And that is pretty interesting because this group of fungi uh, basically lives in symbiosis or some version of symbiosis with other ambrosia and bark beetles. They've never caused disease before. So when did this trigger happen? When did this switch in uh, pathogenicity genes happen with this particular pathogen? And that is pretty fascinating from the genetics standpoint. So something happened and something triggered this pathogenicity. Uh, and we actually think that the, the beetle, beetle is native to the Western US, but we think that there is some coevolution between um, host and the pathogen because uh, we were not, until actually this year, we were not sure if, if the pathogen was introduced here or this is the native pathogen, but based on the molecular data, uh, uh, we support the hypothesis that basically this pathogen is native to the U.S. as well, just like beetles, 
but something triggered that pathogenicity. And that's something that what we are looking at right now, um, uh, these genes that are uh, involved in pathogenicity and how they trigger uh, basically disease. Why? And we're testing basically a few species that are pathogenic in the same genus and some species that are not pathogenic and to see how they differ uh, on a larger genomic level. So you can use molecular data now with all of the um, as as things can as technology continues to advance and our understanding continues to advance. You can you can trace some of the roots and the source of a particular pathogen to see uh, some of its origin, what part of the country that it started in, yes. essentially. And that is another really cool part of what we do. So that's part of the population genetics. Uh, and you can do evolutionary histories and uh, and provide a plausible explanation of uh, the origin of your species of interest um, mm. with a certain statistical um, support. And you can say more likely the pathogen originated uh, from, you know, Western United States um, this many uh, hundreds, millions years ago and so on and so forth. It is pretty, pretty fascinating, but also on a bit a more simplistic scale, uh, we can use population genetics. Um, and for example, this disease appeared in the late uh, 1990s, early 2000 in the Western US, or at least that's when we noticed the symptoms. Uh, it could be the disease was there much longer. Uh, and then in 2010 came to Eastern US. So Tennessee was the first state. And then in 2013, it was found in uh, Italy. So you would think uh, Italy was the newest introduction. Uh, maybe this was just a single introduction in Italy. Maybe it was just human-mediated movement, uh, maybe infested wood, uh, because Italians uh, use walnuts uh, for caskets. So, uh, and among other things, but that's, that's really widely used. And you're thinking maybe just one introduction or uh, very few introductions but when we did um, population genetics of the beetle, we found that genetic diversity is really high, which you would not expect genetic diversity to be high in newly introduced area. Um, so again, to put it in more simplistic terms for us, if you put two individuals in an island, uh, for them to produce like a larger diverse population, it's going to take some time. Yeah. Uh, but you only have a few individuals there, so their diversity is going to be limited. But what we found was really high genetic diversity. Yeah. So, and so I was like, if, that's... So if, you, if you're just shipping some walnut over um, to, where was it, Italy? Yes. So if you're just shipping a, a container full of walnut wood for caskets um, to Italy, and it has some of these beetles in it, and it's just this one-off thing, and that's how it happens. You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect such population diversity in that area. So, because you're finding such population diversity, you need to get down to the bottom of what the heck happened. This wasn't just a one-off event where something came from the U.S. It, so it's either, so, so we can have two options here to hypothesize. It's either multiple introduction from multiple sources, meaning from multiple. If it originated in the U.S., yeah, um, that is option number one. Um, so we had multiple introductions into Italy. Option number two is... Convergent? Um, or it's been in Italy for a while, undetected. Yeah. 
Or number three, maybe Italy is the original population. I mean, you cannot exclude that either. Um, so that's what we were working on. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll wrap up that paper sometime soon. <laughs> Very famous, cool. Famous last words. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, how, how fast do trees, I, I mean, go, going back to humans and you think about some sort of bacterial threat or say ticks with Lyme disease or, or what have you, you, you think about kind of that, those generations uh, happening really quickly compared to our lifespan and evolving really quickly and human generation being, what do we consider that, like 30 years or something like that around the average of, of when we're combining our our DNA and having um, offspring and uh, progeny and having progeny. What about with, with trees? How, because trees have such a long lifespan, but they are also having progeny pretty early on, right? From, from a pretty early age. So it depends on the species species to species. And it's, that's a really hard question for me to answer. I think it's really species dependent what you work with Mm. uh, and how long they're going to take. Um, and considering this with, for instance, insect vector that we're working with, um, and it depends what region you're in, but you can have three to four generations a year. Mm. So, so we have this, I mean, I think some of the stuff that you seem to work on and, and some of the, uh, so actually this is a good time to. Uh, let's talk about the One Health Initiative because I think it will tie into my next question a little bit. Can you explain to the audience? I've I've had uh, I think you're now my fourth or fifth guest on from the One Health Initiative. Um, can you explain uh, to the audience what the One Health Initiative is? It's it's very holistic approach to um, to health in general. So it's not just it combines everything from environmental, um, animal, plant. Uh, human health in general. So it's all connected. Uh, and it's not like it used to be that we're in little silos and um, animal or vet school is just alone, um, disconnected from uh, plant health. Uh, plant health is disconnected from soul scientists. Soul scientists are disconnected from entomology people. It's really holistic approach uh, to to health in general. Um, so that's how I personally see it. Everybody has slightly different uh, version of, of explanation of that. But in my case, I work with a tree. Again, we work with a number of things, but I'm going to, again, use thousand canker disease as an example. So we work with a, a tree that's economically important uh, as, well, as well as environmentally and ecologically. So we're talking about uh, socioeconomic importance for uh, people. Uh, it provides food source for a number of animals. Uh, it is important in the sense of uh, it provides economic stability, but also for uh, overall health because we're using walnuts, for instance, as a food source, as humans, not just for animals. Uh, so it's a really big circle of, um, and then drought and changes in climate change that all affects um the food resources and so on and so forth. So it's much larger and bigger than just a tree gets a disease and it's a complex disease that involves host pathogen vector interaction. 
So it's much more holistic approach uh, to forest health uh, and uh, health in general. So that's my version of One Health. Great. So I, I kind of wanted to um, ask, because I, th- I think we've talked about this with uh, some other guests, but one of the, one of the, not just in terms of climate change, which um, the earth has changed temperature in the past and been warmer than this in the past, but this is, this is pretty rapid compared to uh, most of those past times. But in addition to that, this, this is very much kind of the first time where there was things like global travel uh, and, and thing, things like uh, some beetle or virus or whatever else could, could get halfway around the world in a day and uh, all of a sudden be introduced to a non-native population where pro- probably a lot of times a lot of, when that happens, nothing, uh, nothing happens. You know, probably just doesn't do well in a given environment or whatever. But mm-hmm. once in a while... There's an evasive species that's really going to thrive. And this is, I mean, there wasn't really, there wasn't species carrying things. I suppose there was birds probably carrying some stuff around through migration patterns and stuff, some distance here and there, but nothing quite like what's happening with, uh, with humans now. And, um, boy, it's, it, it, uh, it's definitely concerning <laughs> to think about the the more i mean obviously covid has a lot of us more mindful of these uh sorts of issues but hey, what uh i mean what do we do exactly are there are there things in in terms of uh, what do we do is a little too broad of a question here so let's be a little more specific what what are some things specifically to say a thousand cankers that that happens that um are there are there things that you go uh, when when it's found in trees are there things that you can do to help the trees are there things that that can be done to stop the spread so before i answer that i think you have to answer your question from the little bit broader perspective Mm -hmm. you ask what we can do i mean this is a really good lesson for all of us um we had a shutdown of the entire planet for the last year. And I don't think any of us have ever experienced this. This is just what you saw in the movies uh, or read in books. And this is not a real thing, but obviously it is a real thing. So it goes, not to get political about it, but it goes back to importance of science and funding for science. So an importance of educating, starting from elementary school, educating proper science. Uh, and getting people interested in science, and especially women and minorities. I'm very, very passionate about that for a number of reasons. Uh, And the data supports that women, especially, are by the sixth grade told that they're not good enough, smart enough for science classes, and that's when they start dropping. Uh, And that's where we lose girls in in STEM discipline. So I would love in my lifetime to see change in that, because... Now you have more people interested in science, more people interested uh, in pursuing these careers. That means that universities are going to offer more and better classes. That means there will be funding to conduct research for uh, graduate school and advance. Um, Like we're not going to be a leading scientific force if you continue cutting funding. 
if you don't go off the wall, cutting edge science and uh, going for things, because what happens with each administration, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, you have to refocus the funding towards whatever the administration wants. Sometimes it's very progressive and sometimes it is not. So um, in the previous administration, we couldn't use the word climate change in our scientific writing. It was highly discouraged. So you can't shift your scientific research objectives every four years. Are it you telling me that the party that was the champions of free speech was, was scared of the word one. climate change? The hell you say? And, and science-based. Those are two words you couldn't use. I mean, that's scary. Mm-hmm. So that should be completely bipartisan, in my opinion. No matter what you believe, no matter how strongly you believe, it should not. So we have to prevent future pandemics. And th- this this could have been easy prevention. We could have had vaccine. We could have done all sorts of things before. But it all goes back to education at the end of the day. So yeah. I- I'm a very, very strong op- proponent of education and STEM. And then you have more voters who believe uh, in in education and the scientific thought. And no matter where you lean, uh, you have your scientific background. So I think that's uh, the more people we educate, uh, the better we're going to be as a nation in general. So yeah. that is kind of a big um, umbrella approach to that. On the other hand, for thousand canker disease. Um, so ultimately, when you work with any disease system, ultimately the goal is to obtain some version of control or uh, provide some control measures or prevent or mitigate further disease spread or use that as a, a learning tool for other similar complex disease systems. So we're trying to do all of that. Um, the complex issue with working with trees is, first of all, you have a number of limiting factors for instance, we cannot do the uh, field trials and inoculation of pathogens in Tennessee that we found in Colorado, for instance, because this is a federally regulated pathogen and we have certain permits to get the pathogen and work with the pathogen. It has to be under certain conditions. So for us to do the greenhouse trials, which is we have to use only Tennessee strains and we have to have certain preventative measures, which is a fantastic actually idea. So we do not spread this disease any further. So the mm-hmm. measures are there for a reason. So that also limits what we can do. And in the greenhouse, we can only work with juvenile trees. Mm-hmm. But we do not necessarily know if we have juvenile resistance, which is a real thing, or do younger trees versus older trees, maybe they completely respond differently. And you can only test those isolates that you have in your own state, which again is one of the reasons you don't want reintroduction of or introduction of novel um, strains and so on and so forth in the field. So research is quite limited in what we can do uh, because of the regulations, uh, which can be a good and bad thing at the same time. So we are trying to do a number of different things in the greenhouse, and we've done some phenomenal studies, but we do not necessarily know if that's going to translate into the field entirely because mm-hmm. we work with smaller and younger trees. So also one fascinating thing that we found in the East versus West, um, we found that trees in the East, when we did uh, culture dependent method, which means um, you obtain uh, any fungi or bacteria, but we work with fungi, 
from either leaves or in our case, the, the fungus is underneath the bark. Uh, so this is called canker. So you have to peel the bark to find this, this pathogen. Uh, and it co- and the pathogen itself uh, creates these almost, they look like bruises basically, but they're uh, smaller cankers and you have to uh, culture them in a non-specific media, which means um, you, non-specific media really means that um, there is no specific uh, culture to, to grow your pathogen in. That means everything else that's on that particular branch will grow there as well. So that makes the isolation of our pathogen a little bit more complicated. Um, so what we found in the Eastern US is a lot of uh, pathogen, which, which is actually used as a biocontrol. Bio it's called trichoderma. Uh, and uh, it's associated usually with native trees. Uh, and uh, oftentimes it's just incorporated into soil as an amendment and uh, it creates better, healthier trees and it prevents other pathogens of attacking that particular tree. Um, but when we isolated, so when we, that's what we found in Tennessee. And when we did the same thing in California, where the trees are heavily infested, we found almost none of the trichoderma. So this could be one of the reasons that we're seeing differences in the East versus West, because we're finding a lot of uh, basically native um, fungus associated with trees, which is one of the lines of defenses the trees have. But we're talking about native trees in this area. So now we're taking that basically natural product that's associated with the tree, which is also commercially available as a biocontrol. So we are using that to inoculate some of the trees in the greenhouse and look for the gene expression, uh, basically to see what genes are turned on and off when we introduce that biocontrol and when we don't. Mm. So we are trying a number of different things to, to see if we can save the trees. That's interesting about the um, uh, some of the regulatory hurdles that you face and some of the logic behind it. I, I think it's kind of uh, there's uh, uh, the lab leak hypothesis for COVID is a is a hot topic right now. So, I, you know, I think some some listeners will will maybe kind of hear some similarities there, which in my opinion, whether it is or isn't a, a lab leak thing to me, it. To me, it feels a little bit like um, availability heuristic sort of thing, where it's where it's kind of uh, easy to imagine a movie of like these scientists were meddling with Mother Nature, and then this crazy thing happened and mutated and got out of control. Where it usually it's just <laughs> yeah, usually like someone brought firewood to the wrong area, and that's what happens. It's a little, it's a little more clumsy and nuanced and and subtle than that. I, I mean, I think that's uh, I think that's going to be um, one of the hurdles, which is. I, I think a lot of people get their ideas of science from TV and TV jazzes things up quite a bit and it's not it's not super nuanced and I love complexity and nuance and I think it's endlessly fascinating to get lost in and keep diving into the fractal like complexity of all things but uh, but a, a lot of people kind of want to be hit over the head with things a little bit. And it's, it's a little more exciting to imagine mad scientists in labs and, and that sort of, uh, and, and, you know, the, the more easily you can picture something, the more readily you believe that it could be the case availability heuristic and, and, and so, so 
Speaking of TV, yeah. can, can I give you uh, two sure. things that always Hit drive me. me crazy in CSI uh, based oh, dramas? CSI, oh man, they're they're so <laughs> brutal. The, yeah, now give, I'm just gonna focus me. on two. Number one, since we're dispelling things, PCR does not take five minutes. So you know when they isolate DNA and then they need to confirm the match of their suspect, and yeah. they put it in a in a fancy machine and then they get results in five minutes. They don't. <laughs> Number mm -hmm. one. Number two, these really expensive shows have really bad pipettes. They all have pipettes from the like early 90s. I was like, please invest in just a nice and a nice set of pipettes you can get for fifteen hundred dollars. Wait, what are like, what are they? By pipettes, uh, they're used basically for uh, dispensing or obtaining very small amounts of liquid. Um, ah. So usually under one mil, and we use that okay. for DNA isolation. <laughs> okay. Okay. And they're always old pipettes. That's the thing that gets you. That's funny. I I just I I like that there is um uh I'm I'm a I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, and mm -hmm. you can tell that he does his research a bit more. And so when they're when they're talking about things, it's things where like the concepts make make sense within the world that he's building. And it's not, he's not just throwing around fancy sounding words. He's maybe building fancy concepts, but a thing like CSI is it's so laughable because they just, they just say words that, you know, they know the viewers aren't going to know the word, uh, the meaning of. So it's just like, Ooh, a smart person is talking right now. And I think that going back to the idea of, of making science communication, um, science communication more pot is I also think that that's that makes the idea of science more unnecessarily unnecessarily intimidating to the average public than it needs mm -hmm. to be because they see CSI. And first off, if you actually know science, that stuff's a joke. All the stuff that they wrote on the board and none of those numbers add up. None of what they're saying actually makes sense. But but for the person that doesn't know that, I imagine it's really intimidating to hear. Whereas a lot of the most profound concepts in say evolutionary theory are really you can you, you don't need fancy words to explain them you can explain them in a way that anyone can anyone that's willing can wrap their head around and certainly i would never want to make fun of someone that doesn't have the capacity to learn this stuff but in in most cases that's simply not the case most most cases it has a lot to do with a a willingness and sure there could be there needs to just be better communication um generally so speaking that is, but that is one of the things i really really imprint on my students uh, usually i try to explain to them uh writing uh words that you need to google is not a good science communication in, even in scientific journals mm -hmm. uh, as a non-native speaker you know you look for synonyms quite often right and sometimes you put them in the places like this does not make any sense but you know somebody else <laughs> sure. needs to tell you that part but I usually tell them the way you're going to give every presentation is number one, use images as much as you can to communicate because people mm -hmm. do not want to read. Uh, if I talk about my disease, nobody cares the name of, again, unless you're really doing exactly what I do, but people do not necessarily want to remember the pathogen name. They won't remember the, the vector, but they will remember the story. They will mm -hmm. remember the pictures and, and the images will be what, what's the expression? The pictures are worth a thousand words. Um, and also, if you can break down these complex issues, and again, even when we give presentation in our own department, 
we have such a diverse group of people. We have entomology and plant pathology department together. So our entomology students and faculty, they are not necessarily pathologists and vice versa. I mean, I have basic knowledge and I took several classes, but that does not make me an expert by any shape or form. And any additional explanation with entomology area would be appreciated and vice versa. So I usually tell them, like, you have to give an explanation and presentation. Like, your mom will understand who does not know anything about science or does not have any interest in your project. So you have to make her interested in your project. Mm -hmm. And they've been actually pretty good about it. Um, So I had a student who's working on microbiome. And how do you explain microbiome? It's a pretty complex issue. And it's a very, it's, it's a fascinating topic. But if you can bring, I had actually people after one of my students presented his seminar. And they said, this was one of the best presentations I've ever seen. And he was like, this is the first time I completely understood what the microbiome studies are all about. And I was like, that is a good science communication and it's core. So now you captured audience that you probably wouldn't usually, and then they're willing to ask certain questions. And this is, you know, intelligent group of people. So um, it's not, you're talking to scientists. It's not even a non-scientist group. Right. So, and that is, I think, where we fail as scientists in general and where we need to do a better job. Um, and it goes back to even what I do today. I do everything but physical, basically more or less no lab work in these days almost, or very limited lab work. Um, but I do everything else that I haven't been trained for. Everything from budgeting, financing, managing people, uh, uh, managing projects. So all the things, and science communication, all the things that I have never had a single class. Um, and so you're just basically learning as you go. Some of us are more successful than others and and you pick up tips from your uh, colleagues and you learn better ways and and you learn using your mistakes too. But I encourage my students, especially PhD students who are interested in continuing further, um, take some financing classes, Uh, take professional development classes. I I think it's really important and especially science communication, um, how to simplify the message. Because at the end of the day, if you cannot reach the audience, it doesn't really matter. You're not communicating well. Yeah, I, I, one, one thing that I, um, that I find myself thinking quite a bit about is, is just how much, uh, kind of top down thinking there is out there, uh, amongst people that don't, aren't, aren't, uh, educated in the sciences. And there's the, the amount of, uh, explanatory power and thinking about evolution and some of these bottom-up kind of emergent properties of all these different systems working together, it just uh, it it has uh, so much more. I guess, like I said, explanatory power to it, and it's not it's not intuitive. I'm I'm sure I'm sure we're the first species ever that's <laughs> you know that that's been able to kind of conceptualize these bottom up processes i'm i'm sure i'm sure every dog or deer or what a mammal on the planet thinks um you know oh there's probably a a, a big deer or the uh, in the sky taking care of all of us or or whatever else and conceptualizing sure. things that way <laughs> it's just kind of intuitively how life feels in the in the way that in the way that earth feels flat if you if you aren't taught any differently and rather than it 
it, it's kind of an unfortunate thing is uh, that maybe this is a little bit too much of a chip on my shoulder or something, but I, I just think that um, evolution is such a powerful, evolutionary thinking is such a powerful tool that really can help improve all of our understanding of this existence and, and improve life for us. And it seems like there's, there's a, people view it as like an attack or something like that on their personal belief system or something, or, or people, people view evolution as like, Oh, that's neat. Cool. Things evolve. Okay. We, we stood upright. Terrific. But they don't, they don't realize all the different ways in which these evolutionary factors and complexities play into every little thing in life. And you, now you have something like, say, thousand cankers and and because someone's moving wood around and there's these uh, different symbiotic and e- ecosystem relationships that now you're you're that's the other thing is people don't quite understand how it benefits them usually unless it hits their pocketbook directly so unless you can say hey you're you're a carpenter your your price of wood is going to go up because of this which means the house the price of your houses is going to go up which means it's going to be more cost prohibitive for people or this poor person making the casket maker in Italy that makes the finest walnut caskets and 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 now and now he's having to charge more he or she is having to charge uh, women make uh, walnut caskets too sorry for that little uh and, and you can't even die uh, <laughs> and, and yeah now you now you've saved up your whole life you're italian all you want to do is be buried in a walnut ask it this is what you've been living for and just in that last year the price bumped up just enough where it's like i guess i'm going in pine i guess all that work was for nothing um so so yeah i don't know just a little rant that i uh go on from time to time about so take home message don't die yet (laughs) yeah yeah um hold on <laughs> so I, I mean i i know you work a lot with uh with your uh with students and uh people that are interested in science how how do you think um how do you think you know uh, uh, other than maybe giving csi a few tips on how to how to make something a little more scientific how do, how do you think we go about explaining some of these things to the general public i i think that uh i think that if you're in an area where um a thousand cankers isn't maybe killing off your trees and you're not as attached to it and and you aren't noticing you aren't in the market for a house or building a house and knowing that wood prices might be fluctuating or something like that i i think that it's it's harder for people to it just isn't, you know, people, people work 40, 50 hours a week and they're tired and they want to get done with at the end of the day and watch CSI. And so, I mean, it's just something that I constantly think about how, how do you better reach people without like getting in their face? Like, no, listen to, even if you don't want to listen, I'm going to make you listen. I don't think that works at all. I mean, most of what I do is cater to a group of underserved people that are interested in this sort of stuff and just don't have 
a real outlet for it and provide because I kind of gave up on the idea of converting people. Um, and 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 that's that's the thing. I think if we learn one thing uh, during this pandemic, nobody's getting converted to any way of thinking. Right. But you can provide options. So as a land grant university, um, University of Tennessee's land grant. So we have extension services. So I don't have extension appointment, but we can partner with people that do. We have a plant disease clinics, and uh, which each state has one plant disease clinic. So people from um, all the constituents of the state of Tennessee and, and every state in the United States has a one disease clinic that's associated with a, a plant disease clinic um, mm-hmm. that's associated with a, a land-grant university. So they can provide their samples. Uh, you may be a big farmer, uh, or I can be just a, a random gardener. And you and I can both provide samples to the disease clinic and part of their um, job is to serve the public and uh, to provide you with recommendation of what is the problem? Is it a disease or a pest uh, issue uh, and how to control it or what are the mitigation issues? So that can be one of the lines of defense. Also, uh, for the state of Tennessee, for instance, we have um, extension agents in every county in the state of Tennessee and other states have similar systems, either per county or per district. And those can be your partners uh, for people like me. I have a 90% research and 10% teaching appointment. Mm. So I don't have any outreach appointment, but I can partner with people like that. And I have done that in the past. There are a number of smaller conferences, number of uh, field days or gathering where uh, people want to learn different things. And you can present part of this in a less scientific, rigorous community uh, where you can reach larger uh, groups of people that would not necessarily come across your research or the things you do. And, and uh, Forest Service is a really good outlet for us as well. Um, and uh, any kind of training with Forest Service personnel, and then they can trickle down that knowledge to their constituents. Mm. But I think where my passion is also, and I think a more meaningful and a uh, long-term, not necessarily that the other one is less meaningful, but I think really where the real change happens is when you reach younger people when you reach students at a younger age and get them interested in this not necessarily they're going to all do plant pathology or science in general but i work in a number of uh, uh, programs that um like there was a gadget girls there was a a a girl culture um, and a play on words for agriculture but it's basically introducing these women uh to these are usually high school students, uh, middle school or high school students, and showing them that science can be fun. So I'll use two examples that we did, and it's not even in my field. Uh, we worked with, uh, I do believe, Zika. Um, we didn't work with real Zika. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> so what we did, we had a color change. Um, so it was a... a <laughs> Here you I go, wanna... girls. Let's, uh, we have some, Let's Zika some Zika virus, virus for you to play with. So, um, and by the way, we could not use the word sexually transmitted, so we had to use uh, a different word. I can't remember what the word was because these were minor. It, it, it's pretty fascinating. That's another thing. Yeah. But we used um, basically uh, tubes that they would change the color when they get in contact with a infected um, individual, and the infected individual had a slightly changed color. So... What we did is we grouped them like, okay, now you you two are going to, uh, basically, you're going to be infected by this particular, uh, I think it was mosquito, that particular situation. 
uh, you're going to get affected by this mosquito and this mosquito is going to uh, affect three more people. And then we're going to also have um, close encounters or whatever the word we used with three more people. So just to see how things spread when you exchange bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. And uh, Can't say sex. We're just going to exchange our fluids. <laughs> I know. And I'm just going to roll my eyes on that one. But um, yeah. it was a very impactful experience. Again, they didn't do anything uh, super high tech. They didn't do anything uh, even in my field. But that got him really interested in, I was like, oh, this can be fun. This is pretty cool. So tell me more about it. Mm -hmm. And this is the first step in the right direction of educating people. And then they're going to start asking questions and they're not going to feel inferior because they do not know what this means. So you explain why we do certain things and then you bring them to camps. Um, I'm part of a really interesting summer project. They bring uh, high school students they're from uh, juniors to, I think, um, freshmen. They come to the university, and this is the first time for them to be at a university setting. Uh, they work in different labs, and they work in my lab with uh, grad students. And they just learn random things. So <laughs> I had a girl that came one year. Uh, they come in pairs, and one year, the you know, they're intimidated by everything, which I completely understand. And I asked them to make a... We were cleaning some tissues so we can play them and put them in clean culture so they can see what pathogens are on these leaves. It was a very simple project, nothing super fancy, because they're with us only for eight weeks. And then the idea is they're going to do the presentation um, of, of that project and PowerPoint and poster, and they're going to talk about that. Um, they don't know anything about plant pathology. They don't know anything about the world, we, the things we do. They don't even know what fungi are for the most part. Um so she had a total meltdown because she said, I'm really bad at math, which every single girl almost says when they joined the lab. And they say, she was like, I cannot calculate 10% bleach solution. And I was like, no worries. And, you know, it's like I couldn't do that at some point either. So let's do this together. And I asked everybody in the lab who was there at that particular moment. I was like, let's do calculations. And I was like, I'll show you that everybody's going to do it slightly differently because everybody's mind function slightly differently. We're going to get to the same because I do math slightly differently than the rest of my lab. And it, it happened that every single person really did it slightly differently. And I was like, first, this shows you diversity of a thought. I was like, every single person here did the math in a slightly different way. And number two, we're here to help you. So to, to disseminate that fear of, you know, I'm working with grad students, they're super smart and I'm not. And then at the end of the day, um, at the end of eight weeks, actually, I have to show you what she did because it was pretty fascinating. So it came from somebody who actually had a meltdown of not 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 knowing how to make 10% bleach solution to mm. at her presentation. <laughs> she did this. <laughs> she was like, I know everything about fungi. <laughs> That's how <laughs> she started her presentation. <laughs> and I was like, nice. this is awesome. It's eight weeks. Yeah. It doesn't matter that she's not necessarily going into plant pathology, but I got one girl excited about science and somebody who was very intimidated to make a 10% bleep solution to somebody who was knowing everything about fungi. And I was like, good for you. I don't even know everything about fungi. Yeah, but that-, that excitement translates into so much more. And that was only one summer, one student. Um, mm-hmm. So my mission in life is to have these students every year of my career from 
high school students to undergrads in my lab um, that get this training, that learn new things just because it's there. And then their mind gets completely blown away that things we do, the complexity of a fungal world and also the classes I teach. I really try to incorporate enthusiasm of my research, not to bore them to tears by any shape or form, but to tell them like how big this world is. And as a result, each year I have several students that are either interested in grad school or they're interested in undergraduate research opportunities or they're interested in getting internships just based on that class. And I call that a win. So, and that is my little version of science communication that I can do on my small scale. I may not change the world, but I can make, I can make a difference in few students' lives, and, and that's what I can take. Very cool. Uh, have you ever heard of the um, the Asian female math study? They had. I'll just tell you. They had. Um, yeah. They had uh, female Asians. They had in, in the control group. They had them. They had them take a, um, a math test, and then but then in the in just regular they had regular scores in the experimental groups. They had them. Um, uh, before they took the study, they asked them like their name and then their race. And so they are primed to remember that they're Asian. And then they performed better on that, on the math study. And then on the other one, they had them uh, say their gender and they're primed to say, you know, say female. And they did worse on the math um, test than in the, uh, than in the control. So there's a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy and kind of psychological stuff that happens with that there's um well speaking of uh speaking of um getting more females in science i remember you having a pretty interesting background before we leave do you want to share Mm -hmm. kind of how you got into science in the first place sure um so originally from bosnia I don't know if I said that or not. Uh, I was born and raised there, and I came to the U.S. uh, when I was second semester sophomore. Um, But I also grew up in Bosnia during the war. Uh, I was 13 when the war started. And uh, I'm just going to use the what doesn't kill you, make you stronger (laughs) phrase. So it was interesting upbringing. Uh, I'm originally from Sarajevo, so we lived under the siege for four years. Uh, and you just get completely different appreciation for life, for um, important things. And you learn not to sweat um, big things because at the end of the day, um, you don't know if you're going to be here or not. So when things calm down, <laughs> which means uh, really when you realize this is going to last for a while, um, things are not going in any other direction than you're under the siege and this is going to be much longer than what we anticipated. Um, We had to resume life to whatever the normalcy uh, was there. So my high school was in downtown and I lived in suburbs. But what it really meant, the city does not have electricity and the city does not have water. Um, But I also have to cross 15 to 20 sniper places in each direction to get to my school. Um, wow. And it's usually hour and a half in each direction. So going to school was literally a gamble and you never knew if you were coming back home alive or not. So that gives a completely different meaning to uh, to life. And you just learn to appreciate all the wonderful things that happen to you. And 
So fast forward a few years post that, um, I survived. Um, I survived all those sniper places. Um, you learn to run really quickly. <laughs> and you wow. just find humor in, in, in things. And that's actually how we really, at the end of the day, survived it, is having each other's back. And um, I had a group of students that live in the same suburb, and we would always uh, um, go to school together and uh, hoping for the best. And um, so the opportunity presented itself for me to come to the U.S. Uh, to continue my education. And I got some scholarships, and I had uh, amazing, I call them now my American family. They're really not uh, officially my family, but they've been an integral part of my life. And they eventually helped me, and I had amazing uh, people who supported me along the way and a um, few advisors that got me interested in um, research and uh, I went and presented that research at a national conference which was the way I met my future advisor uh, who at the airport actually offered me assistantship to get master's degree with him and I was like you haven't even seen my resume <laughs> you haven't seen my GRE scores but he said uh, the fact that you presented as undergrad at a national conference tells me enough about your drive and I was really lucky enough to have people like him and my undergrad advisors in my career for the last 20 years. And I still have an amazing mentors, which is one of the ways I really want to give back and provide the same that was provided for me. They saw something in me. They saw potential. They saw person that I couldn't see. And now I see this through my students, which is really a beautiful circle of life in a way. Um, when they doubt themselves, where they don't think why I give them certain opportunities. I was like, if you could only see your brilliance and the beauty of your mind the way I see it, um, I would love for you to have my eyes for a moment and just see how amazing things in life you're going to accomplish. Um, and I was like, this is probably how my advisors believed in me. And this is why I'm so passionate about, in a way, giving back because this was given to me. And sometimes students just need that little push or a person who's going to believe in them, or I'm on a, another mission of providing these. I have recently, I started recruiting a few veterans, actually, uh, which was another passion because that's the world, even though I haven't been a veteran myself, but that's the world that I came from. Mm -hmm. um, and we have much more in common than we don't. Um, and providing opportunities for these students and showing them what's out there and just basically giving them opportunities to learn in the lab and just telling them all these fellowships, scholarship opportunities that they were not aware of at all is really amazing. And not just for them, but for all of the students in my lab, um, because I paid my undergrad with scholarships entirely. I was not allowed to have a loan as an international student. And I told them if I could do it in a foreign language, you don't have an excuse. Uh, so you can do it too. And and uh, I think there, there are so many ways, but students didn't know about it. Um, and I learned about certain opportunities myself. Um, I got a Fulbright a uh, few years ago. Um, and I, as a citizen, I can do that now. But I did know certain opportunities like that existed. And I'm really promoting that among our students now. And also a lot of state jobs that are internationally based. Um, Department of, uh, not defense, um, Department of Education, I think. They have all these amazing opportunities for students. I didn't know they existed. Uh, and I was like, if you... You guys need to do this in between, either um, after uh, undergrad or during the summers or something to open their minds in a different way. So I'm trying to provide these opportunities for students that are not aware of that. Um, and I think that's part of my mission in life 
beyond science. Very cool. Well, awesome. Well, I appreciate you so much. And thanks for sharing that. And Anytime. Yeah. And thanks for coming on the show, Janita Haji Abdich Aguirre. And, uh, and yeah, it's a lovely, thanks for, thanks for accommodating <laughs> me and coming back on to clear up some of the, uh, internet connection issues that we've had um uh, but uh yeah you are absolutely terrific and i appreciate you no problem thank you and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week